Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you here. Uh, Good morning. I'm Jason. I'm the youth pastor. If you don't know me, I'm filling in for Pastor Harold today, giving him a little break. But I'm excited to continue this series, Call Me Crazy. We're in our third week here talking about uh, a queer truth for a confused world. Um, And we're going to continue this series this morning talking about another uh, tricky, fun, exciting subject here, right? Marriage. Um, And they were thinking of who to do it. They didn't ask me to speak on this one because I'm perfect at it, because I have so much wealth of knowledge of like five and a half years of experience in it. So I've just learned everything in that time period. Not at all. Um, My wife's not in here to shake her head no right now. Um, But we're not looking for someone perfect, right? We're not even looking to do it perfectly ourselves because the Christian life isn't about being perfect, right? But it's about getting better, growing closer to God. And then if you're not married, though, don't tune out to this because there's going to be some still practical things you can learn from this because we're going to see ultimately our lives as Christians are all about sharing the gospel, including our marriage. So there'll be some benefit for you too. This applies to everybody. And if it sounds similar, if you're thinking while you're hearing this, like I've heard this message before, that's because we've talked about relationships and marriage a lot. And there's so many, only so many passages in the Bible. And since the Bible is God's word from him and He's written it. They all go together, and he tells us how to live marriage the same in each passage. You can look back at some of our previous series, Image of the Invisible, Family Hacks, Redacted, and more. They're on our website. You can even catch the last couple weeks of Call Me Crazy, which if you've missed those, you should go back and listen to those two. Not right now, but like after when you go home today. Um, But today we're going to see why this topic's so important, why we talk about it so much because relationships are super important. And the world says to do them one way. The world says to do marriage one way, and God says to do it almost a completely opposite way. If you think about marriage and what the world says about it, there's a lot of wrong teachings or wrong thoughts about it, right? Um, Some people will describe it um, like a ball and chain. Their spouse is just holding you back, right? Some people will say marriage is as good as long as it's good, right? It's good as long as it's beneficial and helpful to me. Uh, Some people say it's temporary. It's between whoever or whatever wants to get married. Um, It has no meaning or it's just for tax purposes, right? But God says marriage is different. God says it's one man, one woman forever until death. Um, God says it's about showing Christ's love for the church. God says it's it's a way for us to represent Jesus to those around us. And so as we start looking at this topic, as we start thinking about it, you've got to answer really two questions like you do with all these topics. We've talked about this the last couple weeks. Uh, You've got to first answer that question uh, or make a couple choices. Who's in charge? Is it going to be God or is it going to be myself? So as you're thinking about life, as you're thinking about your relationship, who's in charge? Are you going to do it God's way or are you going to do it your own way? And then secondly, if God's really in charge, then does he really mean what he says? If God's really in charge, does he mean what the Bible says about marriage? And as we've seen the last couple weeks, we're going to answer that question, and we're going to say, yes, God is in charge. He's designed the world. He's created it, and therefore, he's our authority. So if God is our authority, then what does that mean for our marriages? If God's 
created marriage, if he's created it and told us how to do it, what does that mean for us? So first, let's see God is the authority. And we're going to go all the way back to Genesis 2 for this. We won't spend much time there because we've talked about it over the last few weeks, but we see God is the creator, the designer. He's the one who knows how everything works. God created marriage. He designed it. He created us. He designed us. He created life. He knows how it should best be lived. Um, And, you know, if God created it and knows how it best should be lived, he gets to set the order for how it should be as well. It's like uh, if you're a car manufacturer, you build a car or something like that. You know how all the parts go together. You should know how it works. You should be the authority on how to build it or fix it or things like that. I know nothing about cars, so that might be showing there, right? I didn't invent cars or can't work on them, or you at least don't want me working on them. It'll be worse. I have no knowledge of that. But see, God created life. He has the knowledge of it, and he knows how it best should operate. Look at what God says, Genesis 2.24, about his design for marriage. He says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. God's design for marriage here, and whenever we see marriage in the Bible, just know we're describing one man, one woman forever. That's the biblical view of it here. And here he's saying when people get married, two people, a man and a woman, they should leave their parents. What's he talking about there? Well, he's saying uh, they are leaving the provision, the decision-making, the protection of their parents. They're going out to start their own family, in essence. It then says that the husband is joined with his wife. That means he's to cling to adhere to. The husband is to spiritually lead his wife. God put Adam in the garden to take care of the garden, right? That was his, his job. Um, but that included with his house first. It, it included teaching Eve about God, leading her closer to him, eventually their children and those around them. And Eve, the wife, was put there to spiritually encourage her spouse. Adam was created with a purpose to take care of God's creation on earth. And Eve was created to help Adam with that. They were to work as a team and to help make God known to their family and those around them. We see the Bible describe something cool that happens here. They become one flesh. They become one person supernaturally. That means they move as one person. They operate as one person. They think alike. And they work together as a team to accomplish God's purpose. And it's cool because it kind of gives a picture of how God operates as well as the Trinity, you know, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're one God, but three separate working together to accomplish one will. You see, problems exist in a marriage when one of the spouses doesn't fulfill their role. God's uniquely designed men and women, husband and wives, to have specific roles within marriage, and we're going to see more about that in a moment as well. But I want us to understand first that marriage wasn't some idea that we came up with, that the government came up with to, you know, for tax benefits to help you out. God started marriage all the way back in Genesis. At the very beginning, he came up with it. He created it. It's his idea. And God created marriage for the husband and wife, man to fulfill his purpose as a spiritual leader, and the woman to fulfill her purpose as a spiritual encourager, but ultimately for them to work together for God's glory and to share the gospel. So let's see, if God set the order, then let's see the order he set up here in the Bible. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3, and we'll read the first seven verses here. 1 Peter 3, uh, 1 through 6 says, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, 
They may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. So first here, uh, we speak to the wives in that first verse. First uh, Peter 3 says, in the same way. We're going to refer back here a lot today to what's going on in First Peter. And to set some context here, it's referring back to the previous chapter, and it's referring to an example given us of Jesus Christ. And this is going to be interesting because we're going to refer back to this example for both the husbands and the wives. And more than that, because First Peter, this whole book, he's teaching us all about how Jesus lived as an example for us as Christians. So again, I said, if you're here and you're not married, this applies to us as well because he's saying, look at Jesus' example for how to live your life. One, in your marriage, but two, in every aspect of your Christian life, look to Jesus' example. And in the previous five verses, Jesus is the example for uh, being submissive to God's will, submitting himself to God's will. And that word has a negative context in our society today, right? People here submit, and it just has a negative context. But Jesus here submitted to God to suffer and die on the cross and make it possible for us to salvation. God here isn't being misogynistic. He's not being harder on one spouse than the other. Here's the simple truth that the Bible's saying for right now in these verses for the wives, but then in a moment for the husband, it's the same simple truth. It's be like Jesus. In your life as a Christian, be like Jesus. He goes on to tell, the, tell us how to do that. He says, wives, be submissive to your husbands. And again, back in that previous chapter, the Bible tells us how to live in terms as Christians submitting to authority. We see in, in that chapter two, God is telling Christians to submit to authority over us. He tells us he's created authority. God created government. God created uh, structure and all these authorities that we're about to see. God created this so that there's, there's structure, so that there's, um, maintains order, but also so that it reveals himself. Even in times where they're not great, even in times when the authority's not doing the best they should be, he created it to maintain order and reveal himself. And just like God did that with government, he's done that inside of marriage as well. You see, in the previous chapter, it's all about this thought. If Christians are to be a witness for their Lord, they must be submissive to the order that God has designed. And as you read through the passage, you're going to see it's not just wives submitting to husbands, but it's, it's Christians submitting to authority God has placed in their lives, starting with himself at salvation. We submit to God when we trust in him for salvation. But it's the same as he's designed marriage in the same way, for stability and to reveal himself. Now, don't take this the wrong way. Women are not inferior to men. We're going to see the complete opposite of that, actually, this also has nothing to do with women leading in the workplace or in the government or outside of this. We are talking about this marriage relationship here. 
You see, if you go back to that word and you look at that word submit, it's the same word used in Ephesians 5, a parallel passage here, um, and it means to willingly come under. You're humbly and willingly placing yourself under your husband's spiritual leadership, just like Jesus did to God's will. You can trust him to make whatever situation you're going through something good and give you the strength necessary to go through it. Now, you might be asking, though, what happens if, wives, you might be saying, my husband doesn't live the way he should. What happens if he's not doing it right, or husband's in a moment, you say, what if my wife's not doing it right? Well, look at what the verse says. It goes on, it says, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word. Bible addresses that. Disobedient to the word, the idea here uh, the, in First Peter, when he uses obedient, it's typically talking of Christians, disobedient, talking about non-Christians. So more than likely talking about what if your husband's not saved? They're obviously not going to be living marriage God's way, right? If they don't have a relationship with God. So you wives don't have to worry about it then, right? No, <laughs> no. And husbands, what about the opposite side of that? Your wife isn't doing it, right? We don't have to worry about it. No. So here, talking about an unbelieving wife, or maybe one that's just not living God's way, here he says, um, right here, it doesn't matter whether your spouse is a believer, an unbeliever, whether they're living right, treating you right or not. God commands us, uh, the challenge to us doesn't change. It has nothing to do with whether your husband's great and brings you flowers or whether he's kind or, or whether he deserves it, because the fact is he may not deserve it, but Jesus does deserve it. And we can think of our life as being a spiritual sacrifice and worship to Jesus. He then goes on with another good thing of saying, okay, well, maybe your spouse isn't what they should be. They may be one without a word. The idea of be one, it gives the idea of winning someone to the kingdom, winning someone to Christ, bringing them to Christ, whether just bringing them back spiritually closer to him or actually seeing him trust in Christ for salvation. Because our lives have everything to do with sharing the gospel, right? As Christians, that's our whole goal, to share the gospel with others, walk with them, disciple them, and then help them go share the gospel with other people as well. So if every aspect of our lives should be about sharing the gospel, the truth is our marriages should be as well. Ultimately, our marriage isn't about us. It's about helping others be who God desires to be. And wives, that starts with your husband. It says they can be one without a word, and that's not without God's word. That's without your words. We can't change the heart of someone else throughout all of this. If your spouse isn't living the way they should be, we can't force them to change their heart. Only God can. And your words probably won't change their hearts, but your actions might. The Bible says there in that passage that they're watching your behavior. They're seeing what is done, and it gives us the idea that through our actions— they can see who Christ is. That behavior is the way of life, the conduct, how you respond. We talked about a few of those verses last week with it's more important about what's inside, how our relationship with God is, uh, rather than how we dress. But showing that to others is the most important thing. You see, the challenge here is in complete opposition to what the world says. Here it's even if your spouse doesn't deserve it, even if your husband doesn't deserve it, let's love him, respect him, and share the gospel in that way. And we're going to see in a moment that when everything's done right, it helps share the gospel as well. You see, God says, I want you to live differently than how the world does. I want you to live life the way I've designed it. 
so that the world can see God through us. These commands are separate from each other. It doesn't matter whether your spouse is doing it or not. The command is still for us to do it, no matter how other people are living their lives. Now, the Bible gives that challenge to wives. It then gives a challenge to husbands as well in verse 7 here. We have 1 Peter 3, 7. The Bible says, You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. So again, we go that in the same way, going back to Jesus, right? Um, Because ultimately, it's be like Jesus. That's what our marriage is. And so in the same way as Jesus submitted himself to God on the cross, as he willingly gave up his own wants for us, the husband is to submit to Jesus and treat their wives in a particular way. It says, live with your wives in an understanding way. What's that mean? Well, you know, even if you don't understand your wife, you're supposed to live with her in a certain way. And that's a struggle for many of us guys, right? Many of us will struggle with this. Oh, we just don't understand her. So we don't have to worry about it, right? Don't care for her because I just don't understand how she thinks. Unfortunately, that's the attitude of many in the world you hear, right? And it's completely contrary to what God's telling us here. Here, when it says live with, dwelling together, it refers to living together in intimacy and cherishing them. It's thinking back to Genesis 2.24. We see the way marriage should be, how God designed it. And the idea was intimacy on all levels, not just physical, but on spiritual and emotional as well. Meeting her needs, leading her physically, and encouraging your wife spiritually. That idea of understanding way, it gives the idea of knowing her strengths, her weaknesses, her likes, her dislikes, caring for your wife's deepest physical and emotional needs. How do you know those things? You just get married and you automatically know them all? If that happened to you or you did that, let me know how. I'd like to know that. Um, No, it means you got to learn them, right? It takes some time. Are you going to be perfect at it week one? No. Are you going to be perfect at it at year five? No. It's going to take some time. But living with your spouse through the bad times, the good times, you learn. You can't just expect to know what they like and know everything. You have to learn and put effort in and live in an understanding way. And even, uh, uh, we're going to see in a moment, live in a way even when you don't understand everything. But you know, this happened to us even recently. You feel like, felt like, you know, five, five plus years in, you kind of start to know someone, right? And the other day, just a week or two ago, Lauren and I were talking and, and she accused me of not liking soup. This is a really silly one here, right? Really silly illustration. Um, and I was like, no, I like soup. I just don't like the soup we have. We don't have soup that I like. Um, and she's like, well, what's your favorite kind of soup? And so I told her, and it's a Greek soup that is popular in our area where I grew up, but apparently she had never heard of it before. So I'm over here like, well, I like soup, but we just don't ever have the kind of soup. I never made the soup I like, and I never told her what kind it was, but I just kind of expected her to know that and do that, right? So now flip this on here, and how many times do we do that, guys? You just kind of like, like expect to know everything and don't put the effort in and talk about it. We have to live in an understanding way, and it's going to take time and effort But it also gives the idea of whether she's a Christian or not, whether she's living God's way or not, whether she's doing what the the first six verses said or not. We still need 
to do this. It's a sacrificial form of love. It means choosing to love her. It means choosing to be kind to her. It means choosing to meet her needs, whether it costs us, whether we want to, whether we feel like it, whether she deserves it. It means being understanding in the way our wife needs us to be understanding, not the way you want to be loved, not the way you would be understood, but the way she is. Again, it means taking time and learning about how to care for her. So why is the husband asked to do this? Well, the verse says, uh, um, as with someone weaker. And I want to explain this because, again, it's not meaning inferior. It's not saying women are inferior in any way, but it gives kind of three ideas here. One, in the context, it's speaking of physically weaker. And it doesn't mean all women are physically weaker than all strong guys. But back then in this time period, women didn't go work physical labor jobs. They didn't go work and plow in the fields. And they, they, they weren't doing those jobs. That's what the men did. So they were just regarded as typically physically weaker. The point of application here is if you're living in an understanding way with your wife, you're thinking through ways to be polite, considerate, kind. It means don't let your wife do the heavy lifting. Is she incapable of lifting heavy things? No. Can she open a door for herself? Probably. Can she carry groceries in from the car? Probably. Is it kind and polite and living in an understanding way to help your wife out with that? Yes. It's very helpful. Uh, It could also mean uh, in terms of emotional sensitivity. Men and women are wired differently, right? They're made differently. They react to situations differently on emotional levels, typically. It's not bad. It's just different, and it's understanding that. It's the difference between a work truck that you pile all kinds of garbage in the back and haul stuff all around, you beat it up driving down uh, trails and through the woods and in the fields, and a sports car that you don't do any of that in. In fact, if you have a Lamborghini or a sports car or something like that, you probably don't even drive it right now in Ohio with salt on the roads and potholes and how our roads are, right? Probably keep that thing at home in the garage and take care of it. The work truck, who cares? Uh, Beat it up. But listen, it's understanding things are made differently and how we treat our wives matters. She's not one of the guys. It's also, and this is the important one to understand, weaker in position by choice. She's put herself in a position humbly by submitting to our spiritual leadership. Back in Bible times, things were different. Back in a couple hundred years ago, things were different. Today, women can be CEOs of companies, have any career they want, do whatever they want. Uh, But here, a wife has willingly submitted herself to our spiritual leadership, and we should appreciate that and treat her that way. The verse says, gives the idea of to honor her. Honor means to prefer her, to put her needs first. Men, we need to use our position to serve her and not ourselves. It also mentions as a fellow heir of grace. Treat her in that way. It's not salvation, but it's actually referring to marriage. This is all about how we treat our wife. It says, show her honor as an heir of grace of life. Marriage is the gift that's been given to both men and women by God. And back in Bible times, in the Roman culture, they didn't, they weren't interested in friendship with their wife. They weren't interested in getting to know them or treating her in this way. They were interested in what they could get from it. Children, homemaking, childcare. But here, God is elevating marriage. He's saying, treat your wife as your fellow heir of this blessing of marriage. 
He's saying women are raised up to being equal with their husband in the Bible. And the Bible tells husbands to treat their wives as more important than anyone else in their life. And he says, do that so your prayers aren't hindered. The idea is a believing husband praying for an unbelieving spouse here again. If the husband lives the way he should be living, his prayer has power behind it as the spiritual leader, and then God is able to do his part and change the hearts of those around them. We can't change hearts on our own, but God can, and we can hinder it based on how we live. So men, put all this together for us. What's a couple quick things you can take away from that? One, we should never lead independent of our wives. God didn't give us a position of spiritual leadership because we are wiser, smarter, and make better decisions. A lot of times the opposite, right? Here, the idea is that our wife has been given great wisdom from God. Use it. Also note that when the Bible commands women to submit to the husband, it's never saying that's ours to demand. It's hers to give, not ours to demand. And secondly, men, use your position of authority to serve her and not ourselves. Our goal is not to serve ourselves, make ourselves feel good in our relationships, but it's to serve our wives just like Christ, worried about our needs before his own. We're follow Christ's example. And for all of us, married, unmarried, whatever, we're to be like Jesus as Christians, right? So what is Christ's example? Well, I told you we'd come back to it. We'll get 1 Peter chapter 2, and we'll pick up in verse 21, and let's see Jesus' example and how we can live that out. 1 Peter 2 verse 21 says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls." The purpose for all of us after salvation is that we have a calling to live our life the way God's intended us to do it. Peter is detailing that, and he's showing us that in order to do that, we have to live a life of submission ultimately to God. It means you might have to under unfair treatment from your spouse, from your kids, from your neighbors, from your coworkers, from your boss. But living life God's way in the midst of those trials results in strengthening us as Christians, results in God being glorified and others seeing Christ. And that should be the goal for all of us. Here, verse 21, it uses the, the word to, it uses the word to uh, follow Christ's example. It means, gives the idea to trace, like putting a piece of paper over something else and tracing it. Uh, it's the only way I can draw something that looks remotely good is by tracing someone else's artwork. Um, <clears throat> but that's what it means. It's giving us the idea to follow after Jesus' model of suffering, Jesus' model of endurance. Jesus isn't asking us to do anything he hasn't done already. You think you're being treated unfairly in marriage or life or wherever? Think about how Jesus was treated when he was here. And spoiler alert, if you haven't got there yet in the Bible, he died. He was killed. He was tortured before that. 
the Bible tells us to follow in his steps. We're trying to follow in his steps. We're trying to live the way he did. Will we be perfect at it? No, not even close. But our job is to follow after him. We're to make our way through suffering, through trials, the same way Jesus did in humble submission to God. Are we willing to do that? Listen, Jesus didn't sin or speak deceitfully. You see that in verse 22. He was a perfect example of patient endurance in unjust suffering because Jesus was sinless. Remember, Jesus didn't do anything that, that he didn't think, he didn't say, he didn't do anything that, that uh, broke any of God's laws. But remember, because of sin, because me and you have sinned, we've fallen short of God's glory. Somebody had to die for our sin. And Jesus willingly went to the cross to die as a sacrifice for you and for me. He didn't do anything wrong, but yet they gave him the death penalty. He didn't fight it. He didn't sin. He just humbly followed through it because he knew it was God's will. You know, the attitude of our heart is most often expressed through uh, what we say. And here Jesus didn't say anything. He didn't respond in a negative way because Jesus' heart wasn't filled with sin. Instead, it was filled with love and sincerity. The Bible says in verse 23, he did not revile. That means to basically verbally abuse someone. Though he was verbally abused, mocked, made fun of, he didn't throw those insults back. He uttered no threats. He actually entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously. That means he handed himself over to God. He trusted God to take care of him. As he was nailed to a cross, as he was beaten, as he had his beard plucked out, he trusted that God's will was going to be done. So what then? What does that mean for us? Well, Jesus' death should give us motivation in our Christian lives. It should be what drives our marriages, our relationships, our jobs, our parenting, everything we do. How? Look at those last two verses, 24 and 25. His death gives us life. Jesus looked past his abusers. He looked past the unfairness. He looked past what he wanted to do and suffered and died on the cross for our sin. You see, the Bible says because of our sin, we deserve death. That death is after we die physically here on earth, we deserve to be separated from God for all of eternity in a place called hell. And the Bible describes hell as a place of darkness and pain and torment and agony. But you see, God doesn't want any of us to end up there. That's not his will. God gave us a choice, an option, a way out. Instead, he sent his son, Jesus, because he loved us so much. He sent his son, Jesus, to earth to die to pay for our sins because somebody had to pay for it. It's like a debt you owe to a bank. Somebody has to pay for it. They don't care who pays for it. As long as it gets paid, our sin had to be paid for by someone. And Jesus lived a perfect life and died on the cross to take your sin on him and die for our sins. His death gives us life. Our faithful suffering can bring others to Christ. You see, his death gives us that life. And when we're a follower of him here on earth, our suffering faithfully through it, through trials, is what will give us power to our prayer. We can look past the abuse, past the unfairness, and especially if it's with our spouse, especially with those around us, 
and we can see what God wants us to do, how he wants us to live our life so others can see him through us. We have to be the example. We can be the example to an unbelieving spouse, to a spouse not living God's way, to our neighbors, our kids, our co-workers, and we can reach them for Christ. That's what God wants. He wants to reveal himself to others through your life and through our marriages. So you're saying, okay, what do we take away from all this? We've covered a lot. We've talked about husbands and wives and, and what Jesus did for us. So just a few simple things to take away for you as we wrap this up. One, you need to accept Christ's free gift. If you're here today and you've never done that, you need to do that. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus, we just talked about it. He submitted to God. He died on the cross for your sins. He offered to pay for your debt. And if you accept him, you can spend eternity after dying here on earth in heaven with Jesus forever. And you can have a relationship with God here on earth and have him help reveal himself to others through your life. You see, Christ offered this as a free gift, just like a gift. You don't have to do anything for it. You don't have to work hard. You don't have to pay for it. You don't have to earn it. In fact, none of us earn it or deserve it. You just have to accept it. The Bible tells us that whoever calls upon the Lord shall be saved. All you have to do is accept it. If you admit you know you're a sinner, you believe Jesus loves you and he died for you, and you call upon him or ask him to save you, he promises that he will. You can do that right now. It can be a simple prayer. There's no magical prayer that saves you, but it's, again, simply believing Jesus died for you and loves you and that you're a sinner and asking him to do that. You can do it out loud or in your head. And I want, this is such an important thing, I want to give us a moment to do that. If everyone would just close their eyes, bow their heads, not look around for a second. If you've never done that before, the Bible tells us if you accept this, God holds you in his hands. You can never lose this. It can never be taken away. You're protected by him and it's something you only have to do once. But if you've, you're here and you've never done that before, you've heard about what Jesus has done, you know you're a sinner, you know he loves you, and you want to accept him, you can pray something like this. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I know that you sent Jesus to die for my sins. Please save me today. Now the Bible tells us that the angels in heaven celebrate when one person makes that decision to follow Jesus. And if you're here today, I don't want to embarrass you, call you by name, anything like that. I would just like to know so I can pray for you and celebrate with you. If you just slip up your hand, if you made that decision today for the first time, if there's anyone like that, I'd like to know that. Awesome. Well, at this time, if everyone else will look up here, whether you've made that decision today for the first time, whether you made it 5, 10, 20, 30 years ago, here's your last two takeaways regarding this topic. One, if you're not married, look for someone who is following Christ and models these attributes. Guys, I've said earlier, relationships are so important because they can make the rest of your life absolutely miserable or help you have somebody that'll help you with this purpose of sharing the gospel. Look for someone who's following Christ and modeling these attributes. And last one, if you're married, you'll love this one. To marriage God's way. It might seem extra simple and way too easy to write down like that, but that means for wives, that means we're humbly submitting to your husband and encouraging him spiritually. Husbands, that means you're loving and leading and doing both. Ephesians tells husbands to love your wife as Christ loves the church. That means for 
men and women that we're humbly submitting ultimately to God in our marriages. And then we see that ultimately God wants others to see him through our relationship. Now today we're going to end this service a little differently. I'm going to pray and in just a moment we'll participate in communion together because I I feel like after talking about what Jesus has done for us, it's an amazing moment for us to remember and spend a little bit more time thinking of what he's done. So I'm going to pray and then if you haven't grabbed one of these cups from the back yet, they're on the back table, feel free to grab one as well. So let's go ahead and pray.